Hello and welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. We've got another Australian abroad on this one. This is uh, number three or number four of Aussies that are absolutely kicking butt overseas. And one of my favourite and more heartfelt conversations to date, it's with a guy called Toby or Toby One Dawson, an international Dota 2 commentator who's been around since the dawn of Dota 2 Esports. And we had some fantastic back and forth talking about the competitive state of the scene the real stacked nature of the Dota 2 International, which this year had a $34.3 million prize pool in USD. We talked about some of the history. We talked about Australian esports and how you can make a name for yourself if you're starting off in esports right now, and especially if you're starting off in a Tier 2 or a Tier 3 industry and feeling like you can't get ahead. There's definitely ways to do so. I enjoyed this conversation. As I say, pretty much every episode, which I did, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did as well. Thanks for listening, and as always, please feel free to subscribe to the podcast and also to rate us on whatever platform you're listening to. It'd help us out a lot. Thanks so much, and enjoy the podcast. Thanks so much for being a listener of this podcast. We've created it really to help increase information sharing and understanding of the esports market. If you'd like to help us out, feel free to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you do and make sure to share this with your friends. Hopefully we've been able to provide some fantastic information to you and a bit of a learning experience over this period of time, whether you're looking to skill up, enter the industry, or you're just looking to monitor to see how things are going. If you'd like to put yourself forward as a guest, suggest any others or ask any questions feel free to connect with us at bigesports.gg or on any of the social media platforms at bigesports underscore gg. Toby, an Aussie overseas, mate. Early morning for you, late night for me back here in Melbourne. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Waking up, ready to start the day. Fantastic, mate. How many years has it been since you moved out of Australia? And Have you been in London the whole time? Uh, so I moved out of Australia back in 2011 when I went to Germany. I lived in Berlin for about seven to eight years working for a company called Freaks for You. Okay. Uh, and then bounced over to London. Um, and I was still part of Freaks for You for about a year after I moved over, but, uh, I'm now freelance, uh, doing my own thing. Freaks for You is a name that I haven't really heard in a, in a long time. What are they doing these days? Uh, so Freaks for You Gaming GBH, um, if we're going to do it fully, because I always get in trouble for never saying their full name, because um, <laughs> they they were uh, they were a company that kind of uh, started around the same time as I moved over to Germany. They used to be just known as Freaks for You. Um, yeah, and uh, they they branched off into a gaming department and they do a lot of different things i don't know exactly what they do these days but i know they have many fingers and many pies okay and uh yeah so they i know when i was there they used to run portals they're making a huge expansion into tv uh consultancy so on and so forth yeah i remember every now and then i guess they they kind of pop up. They obviously seem to be like you know kind of stalwart in the in the European esports space, but not necessarily you know coming across to the rest of the Western market. So, well, not everyone yeah, can be like ESL and uh, pushing themselves globally. Yeah, that is pretty true. Well, we've already talked about a couple of things, so let's just kick off as always before because I've got a lot that I want to chat to you about. Can you just let the listeners at home know a bit more about yourself and your history in gaming and esports because it's been a long one. Yeah, it's uh, it started a very long time ago. So back in 2002 would have been my first game I played in, which was the original Call of Duty series. Um, so I was a player for a long time. I used to have my own teams. Um, and uh, it took until Call of Duty started to like, uh, move from one get one version to the next uh, for me to go. I, I still want to be loyal to an older version. 
uh, end up when I'm like, I need someone to cast this. And, um, and the group that was uh, in Australia called GameStar, uh, basically said, nah, piss off. You don't have the time. Um, and, uh, it's like, well, fine, I'll go and do this myself. Uh, and that was the reason why I started casting was literally to bring life to my scene. Cause I saw the value in entertainment and hmm. that kind of just like started building up. I never really took it fully seriously until I went to WCG in 2000 and I think it was six, could have been five, um, in Singapore. So I did the nationals as well as the, uh, the Asian championships. And at that point I realized just how big esports is, uh, how passionate communities can be. And that was also when I discovered Dota, which is where majority of my career has been, uh, casting through Warcraft three Dota, as well as the valve Dota two. And I have a funny um, note I wrote down here while you were talking, because I can't, I can't believe I completely forgot about GameStar. And I read it out word for word, um, and I promise you'll probably laugh. It's got a, The note here says, GameStar v Netgame Radio, Toby and Chris were enemies by association. <laughs> Can you expand on that? All right, so, um, so GameStar uh, was led by uh, three guys, EJ, Bob, as well as Glimmer. And the three of them had their partnerships inside of Australia. They liked doing contract work out to Southeast Asia. And a lot of it was still centered around the coverage and control of uh, Australian esports. Um, and Netgame Radio was formed from a section inside of GameStar, which was their Battlefield section. Uh, mm. And when this was created, it was a different view that came from its leader, whose name is escaping me right now. Um, Russell, Russell Norman, RDNX. RDNX, yes. Uh, and, yeah. and his view was like to take it a little bit further than just Australia, like to actually push it and be more professional and, and turn it into something more than just a hobby that people would do in their, in their backyards. Um, and it was the right approach uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, but it created a division within the team. So like GameStar was the, the loyal brand that really helped connect people and started people off. Um so some people remained loyal or some people still believed in like them and uh yeah, everyone else who didn't went to uh Net game radio. Um but it's just a difference of opinion. Um it's the mindset yeah. that uh I think really separated uh the groups where it's like one's like, okay, no, I can just make do with just Australia um and mm-hmm. with our external contract work. And the other is just like, you know, we've got to be pushing we're going to be inventing we're going to be actually standing out from the crowd uh so yeah both views can potentially have merit because one's very grassroots based but uh if you want to continue to expand and grow uh you need to either put australia on the map or you need to get out of australia yeah and it was some it was some interesting times and i guess for you know some people listening to this will know and some won't that that's where i started my you know, career, I guess, in the in the gaming industry was commentating with Netgame Radio, and there was some fierce uh, some fierce rivalries back in the day. I got to ask another question as well. Do you remember a guy by the name of Johnny Cisco? Uh, the name rings a bell, but it was a long time ago. He was the most mental commentator ever that that had that whole ordeal with with Landax. It was a, a kind of a stalwart guy again of the esports industry that got found out to be a con man, and just one of the interesting stories of the olden days of esports. And uh, there was there was a lot of con men back in the days. Like uh I, I I don't want to actually name anyone back then because I think everyone's kind of moved on from that point. But uh there were definitely a lot of things that held Australian esports back in the early days just because funding was getting bottlenecked at uh a specific people at mm. specific events. Um and there was also just this whole like you said like there was there was fierce competition between that game radio as well as 
as well as GameStar. And a lot of it was over battles that you see today as well. Like it was coverage rights. Like you, you wanted the ability to have the tournament. So if you could get Green or if you can get Cyber Game or if you can get whatever was big at the time uh, under your yeah. belt and exclusive, then that coverage right was yours. But the the coverage that we're fighting for back then was just so crazy because we're fighting over 90 viewers. <laughs> yeah. Like that's, all, that's all we could handle. The max server we had was 25 people who could listen to an audio stream. Um, and even that struggled. Uh, there was no video streaming at the very beginning when that whole battle happened. That's why it's called net game radio and not net game video. Mm, yeah, exactly. In interesting early days. And I guess, um, you brought us a perfect segue into the next topic, which is a, another thing I'm going to read out, uh, word for word, which is a famous quote from you from many years ago, which <laughs> is, if you want to get anywhere in esports, get the fuck out of Australia. So I'd love for you to expand on that one too. All right. So uh, it's, I was, I, okay, that, that quote's from a few years ago and I was pretty harsh back then. Um, <laughs> because I kept, I kept getting messages from people inside of Australia. So I got a little bit tainted by it. Um, because they were saying like, I abandoned the scene. Like I, yeah. I, have, I have done an injustice to Australian esports because I've gone off and eurified myself. Um, yeah. And, the, and quite simply, like we were looking to build things up. Like, uh, like if I kept going at it, I probably would have kept working on cyber gamer TV, um, which was what I was doing with Craig Warren, uh, also known as Pandan for a while. Um, mm. and, uh, and that probably would have been where I put a lot of my time and effort. And I'll probably be working with JB, a good mate of mine from the old days, uh, still works at ESL, uh, one of the big wigs there, um, and probably would have ended up working with them. But the issue was like, uh, you reach a point where you say like, in order for me to do this properly, I need to do this full time. And back in 2000, a full-time job in esports especially a full-time job as a commentator, it just didn't exist. So mm. at least not in Australia. So I, I needed to look around and go like, okay, where can I ha where can I go? And because I was doing coverage of European leagues, um, I made friends over in Europe who then, like there was an opportunity to work with a guy called Moritz Zimmerman. Um, and he's like, come over and help me start up this project called Join Dota. And we're going to really ride the wave of this new Dota 2, which is on the way. Uh, and mm. this is going to be our plan. And I'm like, this sounds like a fantastic plan. And it's not like I was earning huge amounts of money. In fact, I took a pay cut uh, from my full-time job at JB Hi-Fi that I was running um, to mm. uh, to be a commentator over in Germany. Like, I ended up uh, earning about half the amount of money I was earning. But it allowed me to do it full-time, and that was that was always the critical thing. And it was the sustainability of the Australian scene to actually work full-time and dedicate yourself to building something larger and not just saying like, this is just something I do on the side. Like this is, this is my hobby and it's not my day job. And for me, I needed to have that strong mentality that esports is my day job. Hmm. Yeah. And, and I put another note down here as well, you know, crabs in a bucket or, or tall poppy syndrome, I guess is something that's plagued Australia a bit for a while. And it was interesting to see. I remember even some discussions in, uh, Facebook groups as early as, or as late, sorry, as, as 2017, still kind of saying the same thing, you know, about you abandoning Australia and that kind of stuff. You know, how do you, how do you feel about that coming well, to these days? In a lot of ways, that is still true. Like in a lot of ways, I, I, I went to the easier region. Uh, Australia was very hard to build up. There's a lot of people who stuck around with it and they did a very good job building up Australia. Yeah. And it's, and it's still getting there in the last, like, I think 12 to 18 months. I think Australia has actually seen 
uh, change of perspective from just being a country where you'll run an event because it's good PR to a country where you run an event because it's a good event. And this mentality yeah. shift is, is something which is a lot better for Australia's future. Um, there's still a lot of work to go. And I think Australia is very late to the party um, just because they were, a, they were a marketing campaign. They were, they were a tourism brochure uh, on a circuit. And now Australia is getting its own credibility that it is actually something, but it's coming at the same time as esports is hugely expanding. And like, I'm not going to start saying like the bubble pop, but there's there's definitely going to be areas where recalculations are going to be made of value. Um, and that's something I think Australia is going to struggle with. And this was one of the other parts of like that quote, um, cause I, I get the fuck out of Australia. I think I actually added on the end of it or just move the country. Um, cause yeah. Australia is so remote. Uh, you need the tectonic plates just to shift and bring it closer to Europe, to America, or even just closer to Southeast Asia, which is one of the biggest networks out there. Every Australian team would try and prove themselves by flying over to Southeast Asia and competing in WCG Asia. That's how it worked in the early days. Um, yeah. And now like, there's a little bit more money in esports, so paying the one to two thousand uh, like dollar flight down to Australia is starting to become a little bit more affordable. But you still have that problem that Australia is remote. It takes you a long time if you fly from Europe. It's going to take you just over a day uh, to get down there. That's a lot of time commitment for travel uh, from teams or from personalities or from whoever. Uh, mm. And this is something Australia will always fight. Um, but the thing that was always going to be better for Australia, and this is the thing which I, especially back in the 2000s, I never saw anyone doing anything about, uh, was creating infrastructure in Australia where Australia would actually stand by itself. Uh, so this is through tournaments. This is, this is being through even just team brandings, the ability for a brand to emerge, develop, and not have to be exported from Australia to be strong. Mm, yeah. And, uh, I- Sorry, I was, just, I was just processing some of that stuff. It's definitely saying some some interesting things there. And another interesting thing I, I see about that is the local scene getting behind the players, someone like Arno in Dota 2, but not so much the commentators. And I find it interesting because you've got, you know, two massive names in the Dota 2 commentary and, and esports community being yourself and gods, but there doesn't seem to be that much attention from the Australian market where, you know, someone who's equally as big or maybe even larger, you know, and are winning back-to-back TIs has, um, you know, gets a lot of the attention and praise. Why do you think that is? Well, it depends where you're also looking for the attention and praise. Like, if you're looking for it in the uh, in the mainstream media, of course, they're going to start talking about the kid who just managed to win a couple of million dollars. It's just his share alone. Like, this will create waves. This gives credibility to to Anna, even if Anna doesn't go out there himself and start saying, like, I'm going to be an advocate for the scene. Like, he still has the attention as someone who has achieved success. But you need to be able to measure the success. And if people don't know what that means, especially inside of esports, like like someone who who only ever follows League of Legends will have no idea who I am. Uh, and they'll be like, oh, or what I've done or what I've gone through. So I can't expect them to say like, oh man, let's, let's give Toby a pat on the back because I think he's really achieved a lot in life. But if someone comes yeah. in and like, they look at Anna and they're like, well, this kid's managed to win like six, $7 million. He's won two-time champion back-to-back uh internationals okay well what is i guess the biggest event that the dota run then this makes sense 
like I can I can give someone respect for this, and this is why you'll have the community get behind them because they are a beacon of what a lot of the community wants to be, which is an international professional player. Mm, mm, very true, and I guess ex- expanding on that as well, I, I find it interesting about how many commentators we uh, and, and analysts we have from Australia or overseas, especially compared to you know our size in the global esports market and and our separation in the region. You know, we've got people such as yourself and and Gods, you know, in the Counter Strike market. We've got people like Sponge, who's on every Counter Strike major stage around the world. We've got you know a series of League of Legends uh, commentators, one of which has exactly the same name as me, Chris. Smith that's now a general manager of one of the best teams in the world, 100 Thieves. Why do you think there's a formula that makes Aussies so popular on the desk? Um, so what makes Aussies popular is always something that I, I find comes through accent and personality. Uh, there's something which is normally just down to worth and true about how an Australian conducts themselves, and this is appreciated, especially in the gaming community. Um, and there's also the accent. Uh, it's, it, it seems something really stupid, but when it's a, it's a timid down accent, so it's not like full, like full Aussie, um, you mm. still need to be understandable to the, to the English second languages. Um, but it's, it's something which just creates this interesting tint. Uh, like you got to have a lot of American broadcasting style accents as well, but there's a lot of accents that come out of Europe where people are like, Oh, I really like this. Um, so I always mm. feel like you, you combine the, the true, entertainment and interesting tone with Australians and that tone is like the Australian tone, I think leans itself towards excitement, um, especially hype casting. That's why you have people like, like Uber also over in overwatch. And, uh, he's all about yeah. that, that hype kind of like unbelievable kind of, kind of tone, um, that he, mm. that he pulls out. Yeah, and that's and that's actually a good point. One thing I haven't thought about too much. I mean, you know, when I was a commentator, that was, you know, who I was, the excited hype. You've got Uber, you've got, you know, yourself with some very famous sound bites out there as well where you're, you know, really yelling down the, the microphone and, mm-hmm. and people are really resonating with it. Uh, tone's a really important thing. I remember there was a guy called Depps who used to cast for, he did Counter-Strike casting um, for mm-hmm. uh, GameStar. And he was from, I think he was actually from China. Um but he uh, grew up in Australia and he had this really thick Australian accent. But when he would cast, yeah. he was switched to American. And uh, and the reason why he said he did this was it got him in the mood. So you'd have trans music in one ear, you'd be, you'd be casting with an American accent, and then he'd have me in the other ear casting with him. And I and I, the first time I had to deal with that was like at World Cyber Games New Zealand um, long time ago. I don't know if Artinibs is out there for listening to this, but shout out to that big man. Um, but, uh, that was, that was, uh, a time when I realized like, this is the perspective that people have of hype. So you look at how much American media slips into Australian media, like how many people watch the mighty ducks in the, in the very first times. And you hear that American commentator, like, uh, screaming in the background and you're just like, Oh, this is what I get excited for. This is what excitement is. And it's like, well, okay. Mm. But that's our perspective because we grew up on that media. I thought Ray Warren was one of the greatest uh, play-by-play casters ever before his retirement, and I'm like, this this is awesome. Um, and like, that's the people that I idolized. But uh, you think about it when people grow up in other countries, uh, what they think entertainment is, what they find a hype tone is, and that's heavily reflected by the media that they also consume inside of their country. Maybe less so now because of the digital age where media that's consumed in your country is not just made in your country. 
Yeah, and, and an interesting crossover, I guess, not not just with esports, like you were mentioning, um, you know, Ray Warren from from the rugby league. Another person that's making waves globally is is uh, a guy called Michael. I'm probably going to butcher his last name. I think it's Chiavello, who's casting the uh, one championship FC now as well. And you know, he's very similar. He has a lot of catchphrases like "Good night, Irene," when people get knocked out, and you can see, you know, in the KO compilations that the MMA fighters or the MMA fans love to see most of the top voted comments are all good night Irene <laughs> as, they're, as they're scrolling down yeah yeah catchphrases are always fun like every every talent I think always likes to have something that's associated with them um, I personally get a little cringy when I hear it's a little bit more prepared uh, like that's yeah as when I'm like eh, that's, that's, you thought about that before you went into it I, I prefer things which just naturally roll off the tongue um, and it made actually by moments and not by not by thought. And you pretty much just answered my next question. I was I was going to ask, and this is a common question, something that I've thought about sometimes. And you know, I've never done this as a when I was a commentator myself. But are there any things that you pre prepare? Are there matches coming up where you think you know there's there's a quote or something that would be a nice time to put in, or do you just flow with the emotions and the color casting? Um, I used to always think about doing preparation and. Uh, and I remember um, it was actually something that EJ and uh, that uh, Bob and Glimmer did where they had the book of quotes uh, and it was a setup book. So like uh, you would say one line, they'll say another one and then they respond with this one. And this was literally yeah. how, they, how they think a cast would go. Um, but I, I prefer the approach of what I call reflex casting, which is you have everything inside of your brain. And if you're just naturally going with a flow as you would in a no- normal conversation, what you would say next would naturally come if you already knew it. So mm. you use pre-existing knowledge. Like you may have just watched something uh, on TV the night before, and then that if that affects uh, what you're going to say in the cast. Maybe there's it's just a pop reference that you use. Uh, a lot of people you'll actually hear them use song references, be it intentional or not intentional, uh, just because that may have been the song they were listening to before they started. Um, mm. like I, I used to do that as, as a, as a fun thing because like music has always been a huge part of my life. Uh, and, um, and I would actually go through entire, I did a cast where I think half of what I said was quotes from Disney movies. Like, and, and <laughs> well, this yeah. was, this was just a fun challenge that I would set myself to make it a little bit more interesting or different. Um, but, uh, it really is just that effect that life can just have on on reflex casting, which you don't get if you do pre-prepared material um, or if you start limiting what you can say during a comment uh, during a cast. And uh, that's that I find is uh, yeah, it gets really stale when you pre-prepare too much. Yeah, and I you know I, I like to take that into I do, do a lot of um, speaking on stage or you know content in general, and I find the same thing with notes. You know I can't read off a script and I can't read off two long notes. They need to be really short form dot points. And this came to me when um, I was in Air Force Cadets for six years and doing all the promotion courses. You have to learn how to teach people, and I almost failed a course once because I wrote out everything I was supposed to say word for word, and it, and it really stumbled me up before realizing that, you know, just go off the PowerPoint deck and what we learn in, in cadets was no more than six by six, so six lines by six words. And as long as you know your topic well and you're passionate, the the rest really flows with it. Yeah, but it's it's that it's that key thing you said, like know your topic well. Like there's definitely yeah. preparation that you go into. You don't th- say like, well, oh, I'll just be fine. I'm going to wing it. Like uh, like then you're just phoning in what you're doing. It's, it's, it's not right. Um, 
and that won't be enough to be a, to be a tier one talent in this current market. You need to actually have a high level of preparation. But the difference between scripting an entire cast as preparation and just preparing yourself with knowledge which is readily accessible inside of your brain, not something you have to look up on a piece of paper, this is good. But at the same time, as you're saying, you create structure. You create these six points that you want to go around. You want to create storylines in everything that you do, um, be it presentation on stage or be it commentary. And I think the two of them have very different approaches uh, as well. Um, in fact, with preparation on stage, actually having some lines perfectly scripted, having these critical buzzwords that you need to be able to pump out because this is what's going to gain that attention of your audience. These, these are critical where commentary, uh, while at the end of the day, it really is telling a story. Uh, you yeah. also need to ensure that you're able to know what that story is and you're able to like communicate that story well. So you can't be like falling over your words when you're trying to talk about like the specific thing that's going to happen in the future, because then you could destroy the story and you really only get one chance to first present that story. Um, and then, and then it needs to be expanded on. But if the first person like that hears you doesn't understand the story you're trying to tell, then it's just going to go to the wayside and you've, and you've burnt that opportunity. Yeah, and I was thinking about something else when you were talking about that just then. If you take a step back and and think about commentary really telling a story, it's almost like why do you even need a commentator unless you're not understanding of what the game is? You know, they're seeing exactly the same thing at the Dota 2 International that Toby One is seeing, but it makes the experience so much better listening to people like yourself and gods and you know whoever else yelling down the microphone. It's, it, you, when you look at the difference between like mainstream sports and esports when it comes to commentary, like if you go to a venue, who do you hear on the PA? For a mm. mainstream sport event, like if you go for the football, like you'll just hear an announcer who will tell you that, hey, like this seat, uh, needs to go check their car, um, or something along those lines. And they'll have like, or yeah. they'll pump around the crowd, uh, something they'll put up on the board. But that's, that's it. Like if, if the hype guy is there, he's there for about 10, 15 seconds and then he's gone. Um, yeah. And that is also because I think mainstream sports is a lot more digestible for the mass public, um, where esports is not. But esports kind of grew up with this culture of, of being presented answers to all the questions that they were having when the games were going on. And this culture is really transitioned into live events, which creates this very unique kind of sense where like it's not just it's not just tone that I'm listening for. It's not just the vibrations. Like if I went to a live concert, like if I don't understand what the singer is saying, that's okay with me. Like it's uh, it, it may as well be screamo music. All I'm here for is the tone. Um, and it's a little different inside of esports. Like people will complain if they cannot understand the commentator. And this is not something that would happen a lot when you come to like uh, other events which are non-esports. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great point about the traditional sport commentary. So often when you go to the cricket, you'll see people listening to the radio with their headphones in, listening to the commentary of what's happening at mm -hmm. the time, whereas, you know, esports, it's it's pumped into the arena the whole time. And obviously that, you know, can cause an issue sometimes. You, you get teams that, that try to cheat and listen to what the commentary is happening, but it makes that live experience so much better and, and more like a, a concert than anything else at, at periods of time. Yeah, well, you shouldn't have the whole like uh, player cheating thing anymore. I think uh, every TO has more than enough technology that's able to like isolate noise 
from the players, even the way the speakers are set up. So this, this shouldn't be a problem anymore. Not like the old days, uh, where you really had to be careful with what you said. Yeah. I remember too, I was going back through my last, um, game in, in CSGO as a semi-professional player playing on stage against, uh, Voxy, who are now Renegades. And someone, uh, came up in there, which is Pandan, who you mentioned before as well. And I was, I was looking back at some of the games playing and, you know, talking about that competitive integrity and esports back in 2013. The only thing separating my team and the commentators was a thin piece of vinyl. And the only team, thing separating my team and the other team was two commentators sitting between us. So definitely, you know, if you took your headphones off or listening closely, there's, uh, you know, no way at all that you wouldn't be able to hear 100% of what's going on. So esports has definitely changed in just a few years. <laughs> that it has. So getting uh, a little bit away from, I guess, the science of being a commentator, but to do a bit of a, a bridge here as well, one thing that's always impressed me a lot is the talent of uh, esports commentators and analysts it's the crazy amount of preparation that they put into it they seemingly um you know without teleprompters and without being told what to do they've got notebooks full of data and information writing down between matches they're always so well versed they're so well spoken but at the same time the market is so much more infant. They don't have the media training. They don't have the years of experience and mentors that the traditional sports market has. Why do you think that it's so hard to break into the commentary market? Why do you think that the commentators take themselves so seriously when the market's so infant? And especially more so than, you know, so many other jobs that we see. I, I don't really see that many other jobs in esports taking themselves as seriously as early as the commentators have. Oh, I think um, from the commentators that I see that do the heavy preparation uh, this only ever happens when they first start out. Like it, it doesn't really mm. continue beyond them because eventually you build up to a level of knowledge or a level of charisma that you can have on camera that you can really get away with not doing huge amounts of prep. Um, but when you first start off, it's uh, it's this self-taught industry. Uh, I think esports has always been this where you've you've started off and you're like, well, okay, how do I attack this? And you look around and you'll see what the people do. And every, every talent would like to say like, oh, yeah, I have this book of like profiles and every single person who's competing here, I've got all this data and all this stuff. And it's like, mm. okay, some people will actually do this. But a lot of people, like if they're doing back-to-back-to-back-to-back-to-back events, will not be doing this anymore because they're living it. Like they're talking it mm. and they're realizing the amount of prep they do could be done by just searching a couple of data sites Uh brushing up, go on Wikipedia, what's this team's previous stuff? Okay, I've got my storylines down, Pat, I can move on. Because I already yeah. know I already know the storylines because if you if you commentate a hundred percent one game, you're immersed in that. So you you know what's coming up, you know what's the, what the big storylines are. Um but if you're self taught you you watch a video and someone's like the best thing you can do is do your research before you go to an event. You know, okay. Research. How do I do research? <coughs> I need to be able mm. to like get a book. I need to write things down. I need to know absolutely everything there is to know. But what those uh, commentators will work out very quickly is how much they don't refer to the book. How much you can write down doesn't mean you can. It's usable material. Like it might be able to get mm. into your head as just like a quick refresher. But then you're you may as well be at university where you're cramming a test. Uh, it doesn't actually showcase understanding, it just showcases knowledge. 
Mm, yeah, it's interesting. And I mean, one one thing I have noticed is I, I do feel like the League of Legends commentators are ones that are much more notorious for that. But I, And I wonder if that's a culture that's it's, portrayed in the I, industry. I think that's also down to a production. Uh, League of Legends actually re- released a really cool video, which was a behind the scenes, why they do what they do. Uh, and you heard mm. someone like uh, like Shox literally debating, like, if I should use this word, if I should use this word. And this happened right. inside the video. And And you're like... Okay, like this is the level of refinement they try and go to. They're all working off teleprompters, which means they are following a semi set script. Um, mm. And this does create an overall professional production. Um, and mm. I think in a lot of in a lot of ways, there are a lot of good points behind the approach that they have. Uh, but at the same time, uh, you have you have this ability for an esport talent to just talk, and you're able to fill. 20 minutes and uh like a normal tv producer would be like oh god we have a delay um um can you just <laughs> can you just fill for a bit uh and like yeah. and, and you as a panel you just stand there and you and you'll just continuously talk about about the game for the next 10 15 minutes and it's like we're so sorry that happened to you because 10 to 15 minutes is like it's a show on mainstream tv in a lot of ways and uh and you're like wow you just managed to make a show out of thin air is basically what happens. And this this is what you kind of need to have with the heavy delays that you can have because of tech, because of event, because of whatever, um, because of disorganization, um, because of whatever reason. Um, and it's, it's something that I think is just, uh, it's just been built into esports where like, we're always filling because we always had problems and things aren't flowing. Things aren't, being looked after by a professional in every single role uh, because you've got people wearing multiple hats. And this has just caused talent to have to adapt. Yeah. One of the reasons I'm liking this conversation is you're bringing up so many things that I forgot <laughs> that that I wish I would talk about more that, that have kind of been suppressed in me over the years or I've just, you know, forgotten over that period of time. And it's it's been something that, you know, has been such a common thing in the industry, like you said, a couple of things. A is the necessity to wear a few different hats. You know, if you're a, I mean, using using myself as an example again, I was a semi-professional player in Counter-Strike. There weren't enough tournaments in Australia and I needed live experience with my team to bring them together. So the only thing I could do was to run a tournament. So I ran it and played in it at the same time. And then mm-hmm. when my focus changed to becoming a commentator, I would commentate and run the tournament at the same time, which I would I would definitely not recommend. But, you know, those are the things that you had to do in esports, and I think it's through the sheer necessity that you're able to build up all of these skills, which is why I think there are so many, you know, fantastic esports entrepreneurs out there, because you've already had to do a bit of everything. You know, I had to build the PCs, take the payment, do the marketing, get the sponsors, but, you know, literally process the, the entry thing. fees. Like, there's, there's a lot of, um, yeah, so the esports entrepreneurs, like, the es- esports, like, uh, like, oh... Yeah, the esport professionals which are out there, I find like they've done a lot of different things. We've got a lot of different experience, and I'll include myself in this one. But when we have to stand up and talk about one thing and say like we know what we're talking about, uh, a lot of the time I think it becomes fluff. And I think this Mm. is where like uh, esport consultants get a really bad reputation because they're they're BSing their way through a lot of what they say because their experience is self-taught. It's, yes, it's experience at an event because you had to do something, but was this the right way to do it? 
was this just the way you did it that ended up working? And you're like, well, I'm going to just share the fact because this worked, but what works in Australia doesn't work elsewhere or whatever, whatever. Um, and this is where like uh, esports being built on the infrastructure of self-taught uh, really starts mm. to, to fall down a little bit because there's areas of professionalism which esports believe is professional uh, that they won't say like, I need to go and get more training or I need to actually look at this from a different perspective from a non-esport perspective because esport people know best because they're self-taught and they've had this work in the past so they've actually got verification for that self-taught. Mm. Mm, yeah, look, it's almost like you're a commentator because you're making some you're making some great segues here, and <laughs> that's a, it's another good topic to chat about. And I think it's it's the total advantage and disadvantage of the esports industry, right? Is that often you've got people who are literal kids or young adults with no business experience um, having that on the ground experience and being launched into esports. I think a, a common um, thread is Carl Flores, who's a co-founder from Unicorn, has has told me this, and he's a friend of mine, and, and a few other people too, saying that sometimes it's the kid in IT that will become the global esports expert for a massive company just because they're the only one that plays video games. And that's the same way that I got into the industry. I made a contact through a LAN party, the guy who ran that LAN party um, also was a graphic designer for the distributor of uh, the the company that wanted to run the event. And they said, look, you're the only guy we know that plays games, and I've seen you run some LAN parties before, so here you go. Go run this $30,000 online, online with live finals Counter-Strike Source event for me because you obviously know how to do it. You play games. <laughs> and it was great for me because it was my opportunity to get into the industry to be able to... Um, you know, help him and join his trial by fire. But unfortunately, it's something that happens quite often without, you know, proper guidance and support. Yeah. What if you have a company which is as like, big as Microsoft or something, and then just like, well, okay, we're going to we're gonna pump in like $5 billion uh, into this industry. Uh, who have we got inside that can handle this? It's like you're – it doesn't seem to be as, as big a deal when you're dealing with small-scale budget and small-scale uh, projects. But once it starts mm. getting bigger and bigger, how do you – how do you actually have someone step up and say, I am a professional in this industry and people being able to believe that more than just saying like, uh, like, like I, I've been to places where like investors, like they, they look at the person before they look at the project. Uh, Cause like, well, do mm. I trust you? Like uh, that's the big thing. And like, I can walk into a lot of these things and say, hi, I've got charisma. I've worked in esports for however many years. I'm not going to come in there and say like, oh, I definitely know how to run every single tournament you ever need to run. Like I have mm. experience with this because of my, my time at join Dota and because of my time when I was running ladders back in Australia. But is, is this really enough of a qualification for me to go? Yeah. Um, I'm a professional and you should definitely trust me with your billion dollar industry. Yeah. It's the whole master of master of none, I guess is, is a lot of the thing we're getting at now. And I guess it's the importance of, getting the right investors behind these people, some someone that can provide you with support and guidance. And yeah. unfortunately yeah. My, that is my, my point my point is more along the lines of like how do you how do you uh how do you know who is a credible person? Like and how yeah. how do you how do you work out the BSs inside the scene? I don't think right now we have a really good way in esports of creating such a filter. Now that's a good point. Actually, you know I'm 
part of the EGAA, Esports Games Association Australia, which should you know, advised to be a membership body because obviously you can't tell people what to do in esports, right? So mm-hmm. the, the notion of a governing body is non-existent. Well, the, the, no, the notion it's, it's, that there is a new governing body that comes out almost every couple of months saying, like, well, we're going to make esports more professional. We're going to make esports more streamlined. <laughs> like, yeah. like, the amount of times I've heard about it, like, like I, I would, I always prefer it's like, uh, see something of actual. Like something that makes me say this group is credible, as opposed to this group coming out and saying we are yeah. credible. Like you start with an action, and the action isn't just your formation. Yeah, I used to use the I used to use the analogy of those of um, imagine esports is a house with um, some brothers and sisters in there, and um, the new governing body launching is someone who just kicks down the door and says, "Hi, I'm your dad now," and everyone goes, "Who the hell are you?" <laughs> and you're right; it, it happens a lot. Yeah, it's it's something which I think um, esports needs to find a solution to because I, I feel like a lot of opportunities which are coming into this industry are getting squandered uh, just because people are getting the wrong advice um, and they're getting the wrong the wrong numbers being thrown out as well at them where like you, you promise huge things. And uh, I know there was actually some things that happened in Australia Um that I heard about, and I'm, and I'm not going to mention uh, who they were, but there were some football clubs um, that looked to invest into esports, and they look a year and a half later, and they're just like, "Well, that wasn't what we expected it to be," because the numbers they got weren't esport numbers. The numbers they got were gaming numbers, and they were mm. very, very different. And the story that just got sold to them um, by the consultant that worked with them was basically just like, oh, yeah, this is an explosive industry. This is really awesome. Like, look at it grow. This is the growth we've seen through this year. This is the projected growth you can see. And everyone's seeing these numbers. They're always thrown out there with millions of people all around the world watching and like making billions of dollars. And, and this gets people really excited to get into esports mm. and to a point where they're just like, oh, I totally have to buy into this. But they don't understand the true value. There is a sense mm-hmm. of reality which is lost when um, when uh, the presentation is made because obviously everyone wants to present themselves with the best possible numbers that is going to give them the best investment capital they can uh, in order to actually build their product or like have someone else or sell sell a vision to someone or sell their services to somebody like it's still business at the end of the day but uh, I I feel like um, eventually like. People are going to wake up to the fact that uh, they're being sold a fairy tale and they need to actually mm-hmm. see uh, what happens when someone sells them reality. Yeah, and I, th- I think, you know, an important part for me when I'm, you know, I'm hyper aware of this as well and I always ask myself that same question, you know, how, how can I portray that I know what I'm talking about when I'm coming across to people? And, like, one of the things that I try to profess a lot is case studies. Use case studies and also use numbers and provide them with links that can back up what you're talking about. And a very important thing that you were saying as well, Toby, is ensuring that you're using localized and direct numbers in relation to what you're talking about, not the global market. And I see this happening in Australia a lot, and I see this happening in other industries where people will trade on market value and they'll trade on global viewership and numbers or just any commodity that is in no way relevant to them whatsoever. You know, there's no reason that if you're a... 
YouTuber in Australia, like, uh, let's say, Laserbeam, second most subscribed gamer in Australia, most viewed, 53 million video views a month. There's actually no reason that an Australian company should pay him big bucks because 6% of his viewers are from Australia. But Mm -hmm. just knowing that and being able to portray that and looking at the value, saying that maybe it's better for him to go talk to the US market. And I always say that you don't... I don't feel like you need to fluff the numbers in esports. They're impressive enough as it is. It just be realistic. And I think that sometimes people worry that, oh, maybe this isn't going to be exciting enough and they're going to go with esports consultant number seven and not me number 15 if I don't tell them something that they want to hear. But I think that it, when you're honest with these people, the numbers are impressive enough as they already are. And there are so many different ways that people can get involved from, you know, local high school tournaments in Australia that have hundreds of teams competing to working with, um, you know, influential people in Australia like Badjo Pants who's got a ton of viewers been on ABC TV for 10 plus years and uh-huh. you know has a has an older Australian audience with expendable capital that likes to spend money so I don't think there's any reason you need to lie but unfortunately that's the way the cookie grumbles sometimes yeah it's all a little bit um yeah I, I just I just wish that more people like when I see things pop up like I'm just seeing something based in reality when they when they try and sell it that's all I'm I'm hoping for Mm, mm. So let's let's chat a bit more about you and about professional development. Then um, uh-huh. I want to I want to learn a bit more from you. It's so so much of a common thing that comes into my messages is, hey, I'm from a small esports industry. I'm from Australia, New Zealand, India, Africa, a developing nation. I don't feel like there's any way I can make it in esports. I wasn't born in America. Um, you know, I didn't grow up with MLG. I didn't join in esports. You know, back in 2012, commenting on StarCraft II, I'm not Thorin, etc. So, can you build a bit of uh, a pathway, or just give some advice to some people who are from one of these smaller or developing esports countries on as to how you built your own path to success within esports and how they might be able to copy some of that? Well, I think people who try and build their own path now have a lot more tools at their disposal. Um, there's a lot more. There's a lot more tools online that allow you to build an online presence. It doesn't matter what country you come from. Like you can be from Australia. The only issue you may have is time zone uh, for when you're mm-hmm. awake, for when content actually happens. Uh, that's the only thing which really try and slows you down. But like even when I started, like I started doing everything out of Australia. I was casting in the middle of the night. Um, I got police called on me multiple times. I for noise disturbance. Like, but this is this is what I went through at the time. But um, I like that's your only real hindrance you have. Like, even when I moved to Berlin, it wasn't me starting doing all these local tournaments. All that happened was was I just had a laptop in a room and I was still doing everything online. The time zone was the only thing which really changed for me. Uh, mm. social networking, it's not something which is limited by country, uh, well, depending on firewalls. Um, and this is, you can build up your own presence. I've, if someone really wants to start, then all they need to do is work out what they're going to offer and understand who actually wants that offered to them. And if, if you just tick that, like, and I'm, and I'm keeping it very broad when I say that, because this industry is broad and the, and the type of content creators that are out there are very broad uh, with what they do. Yeah. And, and, and that's all you really need to do when you, when you start off is just what is, what is my service going to be and who are my consumers? Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, expanding on some of what you were saying is literally just ask people, 
Uh, I was using this example today when I, well, I was I was talking to one of my friends from Nvidia today, asking you know if there's any holes in his budget that I can help him to fill up or you know ways he's looking to spend money. And sometimes it's hard to ask those direct questions. You feel, you know, like a bit of a dick, being like, "Hey, Mister Nvidia man, uh, I'd like some money." Can you please give me some? But I distinctly remember sitting there um, one October when I was working at Corsair because I had to have my yearly budgets done by November, thinking, I have 6000 USD per quarter available and I have no idea what to do with it. If someone was to come through the door right now and say, hey, Chris, I got this cool esports event, I would have probably said yes, you know, as long as it was uh, had some kind of value to it. And you see that all the time. You know, so many people are so busy in the esports market. They got gaps they'd like to fill and gaps they don't even know that they'd like to fill. That quite often if you come up to them and say, hey, look, here's my relevant experience. Uh, got a bunch of Twitter followers. I post a lot. Would you like some help with your social media? Often people will just say yes. It's an easy way to get in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Actually, actually finding, finding the opportunities which are out there is always... Is always the challenge, even knowing those people to walk into the office for. Like, what makes you think you get past security a lot of the time? You need to have, <laughs> you need to have some level of credibility. And when you walk in the door, you need to be able to also show what you've done in the past. Like, it's it's pretty much like uh, like you create your own work experience. But luckily, there's all the software, there's all the tools which are out there, uh, and there's more than enough guide videos. <laughs> if you're ever worried about what you need to do, hell, I have a I have a bug that appears on my on my PC. What I the first the first thing I do, I Google it, or I, I look up a tutorial mm. over on YouTube, like um. There is so much self-taught, self-help videos out there uh, that will help guide you. And like, if someone's listening to this podcast right now, hopefully they're sitting there going, "Oh, I'm going to take some notes on some of this stuff, and I can throw it away later into the fire." Like, uh, this is this is what people do if, if they want to try and educate themselves. So when they are put in these situations, they can handle it better. Um, but still, at the end of the day, like, you still have to look at yourself as a service provider. Uh, be it from like your perspective, which is business. Like I need to go in there. It's like, okay, you have a budget. You want to do something with this that's going to make you look good uh, or give you some level of a return. Uh, or if you are mm. like in my area, which is like you want to be a talent, it's like, okay, well, who am I entertaining? Like, and how am I entertaining them? Yeah, and I think um, like one tidbit of information I got out of like what you were saying is that while the industry grows – and has been going for longer, people feel like the opportunities are shut out. But like what you're saying, it just creates more opportunity. A a growing industry creates more jobs and it needs more people to fill them. And especially these days when you don't need a degree to do most things. Just just look at what Rise did today or yesterday. Like they they came Mm. out, obviously like depending when this is launched, uh, maybe what, three weeks ago. Um, Mm. (laughs) They they launched and said, okay, we're going to release this game and this game and this game and this game. It's like, well, okay. Um, who's going to make a name for themselves in this game? There's no established community. It's, it's it's a fresh start for everything. The only thing which helps you transition is if you had some level of influence in in League of Legends before, because that's the type of world they're using. It's the same type of thing when Blizzard wants to release a new game. It's like, hey, welcome to our new game. Who wants to get involved? It is an opportunity hotbed. Every streamer knows this because they jump on it and say, like, this is what everyone's going to be talking about, what everyone wants to see. And then you're like, well, okay, so where are the careers going to come out? 
how do the people who cast Overwatch League get to where they are? You go in and you analyze like how these people managed to get their jobs. Did they do things before this? Did they gain experience before this? Uber, who uh, cast the Overwatch League, um, was working for ESL after he uh, was casting in Australia. He managed to get himself over to ESL. And uh, he ended up doing uh, crowd interviewing at uh, at the big uh, Intel Extreme Masters that happened in Cologne. Um, he mm. was doing all the grind casting that was happening before. So he had experience. He had a show reel, and he's able to go to Blizzard and say, "Hey, I'm a really good alt- I'm a really good option here." And then Blizzard's like, "Okay, I'm willing to hire you." But this is the this is the prep. You get yourself your own experience, and it doesn't even require you to work for a company like ESL. Um, Let's use Dota as an example with uh, intellectual property, what you're able to cast. Anything which is inside of Dota TV is open for you to cast. It's free content, literally just sitting Mm. there. And all you need to do is get in there and just commentate it. So if commentary is what you want to do, then there is content out there that you can just take and use. Um, Obviously, check your IPs. But like this is what you're able to do at the very beginning. And this gets you a start, which then gets you a show reel, which then potentially gets you paid work. Uh, so then you can work as a freelance commentator for events, which there are so many out there that it's not just like tier one only casters who do this or even tier two or tier three casters. Like the the quality of commentary in some of these like uh, cups is absolutely horrendous. Um, it's not that hard to challenge them. And all you need to do is just like work on your on your skills a little bit. And you can already push yourself up into the tier three market and actually start charging $10 a game uh, and then actually having some level of income come in to upgrade your setup or or potentially sustain you in life. Yeah. And, and another another case study adding on to like what you were saying um, about picking the new game titles that came out, and it's a perfect segue, is Kanga Esports. You know, they were one of the best Overwatch teams in Australia. And then the Challenger game for Overwatch came out, which was Paladins. And they said, look, if we switch to Paladins right now, yes, it's more of a tier 2 eSport, but it comes with international opportunities. You know, they really put a lot of time and effort into that. And lo and behold, they're over in DreamHack, they're overseas, they're the third best team in the world. And now that's that's enabled them to join the Paladins Pro League. They've got a team house in Atlanta where they play from a studio every single week. And it's highly unlikely that without raising a ridiculous amount of capital, they'd have an Overwatch World League spot right now. So you could say they probably picked the right path. Yeah, yeah. Not not all like the tier one game isn't always the best game to follow. Developers are still pumping in a hell of a lot of money to get their game out there, and they're willing to burn a large portion of their marketing budget to make it so. Mm, yeah, and but, like I have talked about publicly, you know, Kanga is a is a cash flow positive company. They're they're an esports team that's churning a profit, which is rare in itself. But like you were saying, I think that a lot of people don't pay attention to the tier two of esports because it's just simply not as sexy as a thirty million dollar Overwatch franchise slot. But it is mm-hmm. very sustainable. Yeah, well, it's sustainable for a while. Like you still have to keep in mind that this will only run as long as it's uh, turning even. Uh, as far as marketing is able to bring in enough sales into the game. Because if this is still mm. developer-funded, what happens when the developer pulls the funding? Like, yeah, does, and you does, get your, the, uh... does your team fall apart? Does the entire scene fall apart? Or is there a third party that's able to sustain this? Uh, like, what happens tomorrow if in, if Riot come and say, well, okay, we're going to just, we're cancelling worlds, third parties, do whatever you want. Like, apply to permit for permission to run events. Like, does the scene still hold its same credibility? Have you over expanded? 
um, based on the fact that you thought that what the developer was doing was going to continue. And that's and that's the difference between a game like Call of Duty and a game like CS:GO. You know, in Australia, for example, CS:GO has has never to this date really had any developer support at all whatsoever. Whereas, you know, Activision had a stranglehold on the Call of Duty community when they left. It doesn't exist anymore in Australia. You know, the competitive community simply doesn't exist. Whereas CS:GO is tied for the number one esport in Australia, besides League of Legends, and you know it's absolutely booming here. And it's it's through that community support and you know people really getting around the game. So you've mm-hmm. always got those advantages and disadvantages. And I guess this is another good segue. Can you give us some of your thoughts on on franchising within esports and also the possibility of franchising within a game like Dota in esports? Uh, so franchising in Dota will probably never happen. Um, and that's pretty much down to the fact that, uh, the, the way the scene is structured puts all the power in the hands of the players. So there is no loyalty mm. to an organization. You look at two of the biggest organizations in Dota, which is OG and Team Secret. These were player created because they were actually annoyed with the organizations that were in the scene. And rightly so back then, because mm. every organization was, looking for a quick buck and ripping off the players. Um, And this actually stems back to the International One, where a group called Meet Your Makers uh, actually tried to demand money out of the players' winnings for uh, bad performances in previous tournaments, um, Mm -hmm. which was very messed up. And uh, ever since then, Valve was always making sure they protected the players above anybody else. Um, And that's their prerogative as as the IP owners. Um, But it did kind of create this this stigma around um, organizers, I mean, our team owners. Uh, and it, it really, mm. like, it, it doesn't open itself up for that. And when the prize money comes out and the prize money goes directly to the players, you're there going, well, okay, well, what have I made as a team or, or, or not? Like, I'm still having to pay someone, like, what, 5000 a month, uh, that's that's actually a, like an average salary in Dota, um, five thousand a month in order to play on my team, and they're still taking all the prize money, and I only get like fifteen percent of endorsements. Like, is this really what I need to do to actually hold on to a tier one team? And it's it's real rough, and I think that's why franchising won't really happen in Dota. Um, but it's possible in other scenes where the players coming in and out are not the biggest brands. Um, the player transfers can be like, that's when like, uh, you do see player brands moving from one to the other, but at the end of the day, you know, that in order to be in this scene, you need to have $25 million to pay for a slot and no players can be sitting there saying, I have $25 million. They understand that at that point, they need a team. They need to actually be part of that franchise in order to be in this competition, to be playing at the very best. Uh, and it gives power back to the clubs in just the way they've created it. Um, at the same time, that only really works well as long as the club is sustainable. Because if the club goes under or the club has to cut costs here and there in order just to pay for the $25 million, then you kind of go back down the other track, which is like clubs abusing players. Yeah, so so besides your thoughts on that, I'd I'd love for you to explain a little bit on your thoughts on the the health of the Dota scene in general, like the competitive nature of the Dota Two esports market. Um, so Dota Two has uh, it's always up and down for me. I find it very difficult to know exactly where we go because a lot of the times when things are announced for like the DPC changes, which is what we currently use the Dota Pro Circuit, um, mm. there's not a lot of details inside of it. 
it, it kind of is dealt with when it arrives. Um, so you're never exactly certain where things are going to go. You still rely heavily on third parties uh, in order to execute the the season itself uh, before TI, because um, it's still never Valve run. It's only ever Valve prize money funded. Um, and there's no other funding that comes outside of that. So this is this is kind yeah. of where like uh, it's only sustainable as long as the third parties is sustainable. And then TI kind of stands alone as the big eclipsing event. And that's kind of where it's something that CSGO doesn't have a problem with. All the majors are equal and every tournament organizer is always trying to improve so they can get that major and they can get the financial benefit as well as the credibility that comes along with it. But it's it's less of um, of the credibility you have of saying, like, I'm running a Dota major. There is some to it, but it's not anywhere near as effective as running a CSGO major. Um at the end of the day, TI will still eclipse. And TI is all that matters. The players have said it many times, and it's just the way the scene was was founded. Uh, when the International One first happened, it was $1.6 million worth of prize money. Uh, the biggest tournament we had before then, I think, was the Razor Global Challenge for 30000 Like mm-hmm. It was night and day. And what happened directly after uh, the International One? Like, I can tell you because uh, it was joined out. It was like my group that was running it. Um, we ran a 500 euro cup that went for four days across a weekend and had every single one of the top teams that played at TI <laughs> playing in a 500 euro cup because at the end of the day, like yeah. it wasn't sustainable at that point. Um, so when you, when you look to Dota and you look towards the future, you still are never certain because it's a very fanatical fan base. Um, and that means the game will never die. Uh, but the direction of it and the, and the growth of it still is fully dependent on how Valve wants to handle the scene and how the brands who are in the scene either want to develop, stay, or even leave. Um, and that's that's kind of like where you hit your final uh, your final uh, view of it, where it's like, like am I growing? Like, and uh, when I say growing, like uh, a lot of people, I think are very happy just to say like, oh, uh, this game is still alive because we're only losing players at like uh, at a rate of like 1% every month. And that makes us mm. growing um, because we're able to sustain through what should be a decay rate of uh, this game is getting old. Like Dota's coming up on its nine years, League of Legends coming up on its 10 years. Like, are these games still strong? Uh, yes. Yes, they are. But do they keep up with the growth of things like when PUBG first exploded, Fortnite, and every other game that's going to come along with them, like afterwards, where you've got now the numbers, uh, their growth rates are absolutely insane, even if their burn rate may be a lot faster. Um, are you still saying like you're keeping up? Are you still growing? You've got millions of people coming into the esports scene now, but how many of these people are being like retained into games like Dota or games like League of Legends. And how many of them are actually responsible for the big boom into Minecraft? And you're like, well, okay, well, you realize these new gamers are actually not attracted to these scenes. Um, and these scenes will continue to function for the hardcores, but the new the new uh, generation of gamer uh, really wants different things. And that's something which I don't think Dota is able to capitalize on. Uh, but I think it's something Riot was very smart about because they're already working inside of schools. They're already educating the next generation into their games. Uh, so they are in a very, very good position because they understand, like, like to keep your eSport alive, 
to keep your gaming community alive, one, you need to have the law that's behind it, so all their games operate around the League of Legends law. That lesson's already been learned from the world of Warcraft um, and and the world that mm. Blizzard created. Uh, and then they also need to tap into the next next generation so the next generation understand what's going on on the screen. Like You have current generations, like I look at League of Legends and fully understand what's going on. Same for people who watch Dota. They're like, what the hell is going on? But if you mm. educate the next youth, into understanding the game, then you're not just making players, you're making viewers from a very young age. And I, I don't know the best way to ask this question, so I might stumble through it, but what I, what I want to know from you as well is in Dota 2, who wins out of out of the whole industry? So let's say, if you think about an industry like Fortnite, the real winners there are probably the influencers. Fortnite's made it pretty clear they don't care much about the teams at all. The players are now starting to make some pretty good money, but overall the influencers are so supported, they're so looked after in that. In CSGO, it feels like the organisations are probably the real winners here. They seem to be the ones that get a lot of the attention, they're getting the sticker sales, the in-game uh, merchandise, etc. What about in regards to Dota? Who's, who's put on the biggest pedestal there and who do you think the biggest wins are no very simply it's players i think everything i just said before kind of like reiterates that is it's players who win because it's players who who get the money they get the fame they get the support they get the uh the backing from the community i think csgo also um i think players don't really understand uh a large portion of what they do get because i think csgo players uh they yes it's definitely tos who have a lot more freedom with what they do. Um, mm-hmm. I think it makes it a little bit more of a cutthroat world when you see the competition with like the SL and Dreampack now teaming up against Blast Pro um, mm. and just uh, they're stepping on each other's toes and trying to work together and Valve throwing like a, a stick between them and saying, hey, hey, play nice. Um, like, so like this kind of causes problems. But inside of that, like teams are the commodity uh, and the players who are on those teams you want to keep them happy. You want to keep them together because you want to keep them winning. You need everything to work in order to stay on top of, of the CSGO ladder. Uh, and I think that's where teams and players really start getting the infrastructure, which I think a lot of other esports are very jealous of because you're able to have this, this brand opportunity. You're able to have this support network uh, for players, and you're able to have decent salaries there um, without the players getting the ego that comes along with the huge amount of money that you could potentially win. Like, if you win TI, like, what's the point of me playing anymore? Unless I really love mm. the game, like, I don't need to do it. And you just had OG that just won twice in a row. Like, mm. these guys are loaded. They could do whatever the hell they want. Um, so why would they ever listen to a a team manager? And I'm not saying it's better that the money stays with the CEO of that team um, and is and is trickled down in consistent packages to the players. Uh, the players still deserve the money that they win, so like I'm not for any kind of abuse on that front. Uh, but it does create this level of consistency, which gives longevity to the scene, where Dota is always up in the air, and people are just like, oh, "Are we actually going to survive?" Oh, like insecurity times right now is like. League of Legends is adding a new change. Oh, wow. What have we got? What, what's happened to us recently? Well, we've got a couple of small patches that oh, we've got two new heroes coming. All right. Like, what's the hype around our game that makes us say, like, this is going to survive? 
when Fortnite is literally playing the hype drum every single month as they just have this new yeah. campaign, then new campaign, then new campaign. And every single time it's creative and you're sitting there going, well, what is my developer doing for me at the end of the day? Uh, what is the developer doing for the scene? Like, is the game that I love still interesting for not just mm. me, but for everyone else that's also playing? Like, everyone kind of always wants to move with the latest trends. I want to be able to talk in my group of friends, like, of what I've been up to. But if the only conversation I ever have is, yeah, I, I've got to play Dota, like, um, that's not going to be as interesting. If I, I was there when the Black Hole got, what got released, now that's something interesting to talk about. And this is keeping your game relevant and forever changing, uh, mm-hmm. which I think is very challenging for, for mobile-style games because it's very difficult to do that and maintain balance. And to expand on some of the, the winnings, I've, I've got like esportsearnings.com open here. And, and for those people listening, the crazy difference in prize pools. Dota 2 is number one with 216 million USD given out over 1,266 tournaments. Second place is at 84 million, which is Fortnite, which has arguably been around for a year as an esport. And then you get to number three, which is CSGO at 83 million, which is at 4,300 tournaments. So even discounting Fortnite from Dota 2 to CSGO, you know, not only are you looking at uh, approximately triple the amount of prize money, but you're also looking at one third of the tournaments have been run to get to triple the prize money. So the difference is just astronomical between those scenes. Yeah, it's. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of this though is still like like for Dota, like it was all because of community funding. Like that's yeah, that's where it all came from. That's the strength. Like Valve still have not changed their base prize pool of TI this entire time. And there was one yeah. year when there was a lot of money pumped in from Valve into prize money. Uh, and that was because they funded the miners and the majors. And there were a lot of them. Like there was like every month we had probably like uh, two miners and, and a major as an average. Uh, and yeah. that was a lot of money to pump in because uh, Valve would match 50%. Like if you raised 150, they'll give you 300K. If you raise 500,000, they'll give you 1 million. And that would be the, the benchmarks for minor and major. Um, but you could also raise 1.5 million and Valve would give you 1.5 million. Like, this is the way they did it. So they inflated for a year uh, the amount of money that came out, but then it really cut down the year after. So, like, mm. you still have TI, which is, is just ludicrous amounts of money. Because, um, like, his, what was it, 36 million this year or something? It was, uh, like, it's, yeah. actually, it's actually reaching a point of diminishing returns. Um, but the numbers still look really nice. That's, yeah. Yeah, and that's a really interesting diminishing returns thing. You know, we've been talking to Golf about um, reaching younger audiences through gaming and such. And, you know, they're saying here with the amount of prize money that they offer for golf in Australia, um, it doesn't really serve them much advantage, if at any, to increase that prize money unless it's a significant amount, like tenfold what they're currently supplying. And, you know, is this what we're going to start seeing with Dota 2? If we've got a 35.6 million, I think it was something like that, dollar tournament, does it really mean anything extra for the players if it's 45 million? Or can that money be reinvested into the pl- for the a more well For the still means everything because uh, the distribution gets changed around. Low is still high. Mm. But the players still focus on just being the champion as well. Like, the money is great. But you know, just by attending TI, you've instantly won 60,000. 
Uh, so it's like, it's, it's not a, it's not a hard, a hard sell. Um, yeah, but it's, it's still one of those, um, uh, you just, it's, it's, you start to reach a it point where, it, right? yeah, like, you, like if you, the only time that it's going to go bad is when it goes backwards. Like when, when mm. you've, when you've put yourself in a position where you've taken from the community, um, and the community would lose face if that price pool ever went backwards. Yeah. That's when people will start screaming, is Dota dead? Have we lost our momentum? Hmm. That's a, and that's a good point, actually. I guess you're setting yourself up for failure in the future. You know, it's unlikely that a game's going to last forever. It has been nine years so far for Dota 2 and, you know, much longer, again, if you include Dota 1. But, yeah, what happens when those numbers go backwards? And mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's important, too, is thinking about, like you were saying, the whole competitive ecosystem and uh, being disingenuous with numbers like we were talking about before. I hate it when people talk about, you know, Dota 2 is the number one esport in the world because of X prize money or Fortnite is number one because of X prize money. And making sure to point out other games like League of Legends who employ hundreds of staff around the world full-time full-time commentators, they support the ecosystem, and in Tier 2 and Tier 3 countries, like here in Australia, they were back-end funding 50 to 75% of teams' operation costs. You know, they said, look, we want you guys to professionalise, we require you to have team salaries, to have houses, to look after your players, and to play from a studio, but we're going to commit to back-end fund 50 to 75% of your rent, your food, utilities, all that kind of stuff as well, and they've done so much for developing the esports ecosystem, rather than necessarily necessarily just lumping it all into one tournament which is really do or die it's the um it's the biggest like remember when epic came out and they said you know what we're gonna do we're gonna put a hundred million dollars into our <laughs> esports and i'm like it would have been great if they just left it at that but they said they put it in esports prize money and it's that yeah. last bit that gets put on there and you're just like this is when you don't really get what you should be doing here like Riot gets it. Riot's like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna build infrastructure for our longevity, yeah. for our sustainability. Um, and what we do is we actually build up a competition which has a reputation, and that's what you want to win. Uh, it's not the money, and we never make it about the money. It's about reputation, and this is why I think like uh, Riot's in a very good position moving forward uh, if they handle their other esports the same way, where they will outlast other games just because they know what they've learned from the original league of legends like the original worlds were pieces of crap um but they laid that they learned their lessons very quickly it took them three or four worlds before they then reached the point of saying like yeah hey we're actually in a really good position now um mm. and they're able to work on those finer details and then clone what they already have developed into into other games and now other genres uh to potentially create what is something that we were expecting TOs to attempt, which is to create this global league, which uh, services different genre communities. But that was always Mm. so difficult because the TOs don't hold IP rights. The IP rights in gaming, it's not like the NBA, it's it's not like basketball where like basketball is everyone's, but NBA is just so strong that like NBA is, is the basketball or what like like I literally just did it there where I'm like and instead of saying basketball I say the NBA. Um yeah. like they they literally get their brand to a point where they become the game. Um this is impossible because in in gaming the IP still belongs 
to the developer. So what does a TO do if they don't have that developer support? What if Valve comes down just like they did to DreamHack and ESL and said, <clears throat> uh, you cannot have exclusive teams, um, or to Blast Pro, you cannot have exclusive teams in, in your competition. And they're just like, well, that's what gives us value. Like we have these franchises that we want to have in our competition so we can support them. Yeah. And we can space out the games they play. We can create seasonal starts and ends. We can create trading periods and everything else. It's like, well, okay, you can't do any of this now. This, this, this is impossible. Um, but if the developer is the one who is running both the esports as well as the IP, they have all the freedom to do what they want. They can advertise inside of their games to not just the esports community, but to the whole general community of that game. Um, and they have the biggest focal, focal voice because they've realized that they're able to build up what is going to be their own effective, both studio as well as TR. Uh, and they can just run their own IPs through the machine and the machine will know how to build esports. and what pumps out the very end of it. Oh, a successful product every time. Mm. A lot of, a lot of good points there. Um, especially around, you know, the professionalization and, and, um, making things a bit less fragmented. And I always say like, it's, it's one of the most exciting things about esports, but also the worst is that there's so much happening at any one time. There's so much exciting things. You've got, you know, six different tier one tournament organizers that are all running CSGO comps around the world. And it's great because every weekend as a fan, you can watch some more Counter-Strike, but it's hard for anyone to make any money then when things become so fragmented. And that's why, you know, I really wanted to ask that question from you before as well. And and something I've been thinking about a lot more recently is, you know, who wins? And I feel like who wins in the overall esports market is A, the publisher slash developer, like you're saying, and and B, the influencers. And, you know, that's something that uh, I think has to change for esports to become a bit more sustainable. Yeah, well, the sustainability of esports, I think, is still going to go around rights. Who owns what? Who's able to do what? Because at the end of the day, like you can build whatever you want, but if you don't have the rights to it, then you're just building something for somebody else, and they can either trash it or they can uh, they can glorify it. Either way, you don't really control the future of what you're putting your time and effort into. But this is something the community has always been willing to accept because it's got a grassroots mentality. We begin by supporting each other so the game can flourish. It's a very selfless kind of act, which is why gamers, I think, have such a hard time with business people because it's not really selfless. You're looking for your return. Uh, I put $1 million in. I'm hoping to get $2 million out. Um, mm. Where the community is like, I put $2 million in. I'll be happy to get $1 out. Yeah, for sure. Look, I'm mindful of, of taking up too much of your time, and I'm sure we're going to schedule another one of these in, in a couple of months to to have some more chats and some updates. But I guess the last question for you as, you know, as a fan of, of yours and as a fan of commentary as a whole, what's what's a day-to-day look like at a Dota 2 International for a Toby One? Can you give us a, a play-by-play as to what you go through <laughs> through your eyes? You mean at the International? <laughs> yeah, yeah, at the International. Oh, at the International, I don't actually get to do much. Um, they hire so many people. I literally come in, cast one game, and I'm done. Um, wow. So the rest of it is just watching. Uh the best events I get to do are the ones where, like, I actually missed the original TI one. I cast every single game that was there, and it was like, and I was so tired. I was like, run ragged. My voice was dying, uh, and it was still one of the greatest times ever because I actually get to live what I do, and I'm there to do what I do. Um, the worst thing you could ever do is fly out, do something for five minutes. And it's like, why am I even here? 
like uh like this is it's very pointless in my mind um so yeah mm. it's it's really not that spectacular when you think of a day of the life of the international but uh when it comes to like a day of doing like a, like an ESL event that you come in, it's like, okay, well, I've got to cast two best of threes today. Maybe I'm going to appear on panel in the, at the end, at the end of the day. And we're going to do a signing session in the middle of this. And I'm going to go out there and I just going to meet fans anyway. So like uh, at ESL one Birmingham, I just walked out there. I literally just started walking around the crowd so I can just go out there and chat to people. Like um, there's, there's a lot of different elements that, uh, that you can create yourself when you go to events to do. Uh, if you can just muster up the energy to do it. And that's the harder thing, like balancing your energy, making sure that at the end of the day, when I come in, I'm sitting there going, all right, I actually have the energy to give this cast everything I've got. Uh, hmm. And that's actually there. So I, I don't drink until the very last night of an event. Um, I, I feel like I need to get a good night's sleep. I go back to my hotel room. I'm very much a hermit uh, when I travel because... Like this is a reason too why um why talents are, uh, started actually like really requesting their own rooms because we need to be able to switch off and not talk to people. We need to be able to just like recharge the batteries and then come back out there and go, all right, let's go with this. Like um, mm. especially as you get to like like my age, <laughs> it's, you 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 start to not have all that limitless energy you seem to have in your early twenties, and you're like, oh. God, like I, I used to, I used to work eight hours uh, in retail. I'd then come home and have dinner for half an hour. Um, I would then cast until like four a.m. in the in the morning. I would then have maybe two, two and a half hours sleep, and then get back in the car and go and go back to work again. And that's the way I lived for a couple of years. But eventually, this takes its toll on you, and you can only do that for so long. Um, and uh, I worked even harder once I got a full-time job. I ended up sleeping in the studio most most nights um, just because I'm like, this mm. is this is what I need to do. I, content must be covered. I must be consistent. I must be out there. Uh, and you work yourself to the bone, but uh, you need to really manage your energy. So when you still, like, uh, what was it? Like when, when someone says, like, you, you have a conversation with me, make sure you're here. Um and not just like your brain flittering around, but when you get so tired, your brain, your brain is always like flittering around. It's, it's never where it needs to be, uh, which is there in the moment to really remember, appreciate, and make the most of it. Mm, so good pieces of advice. So speaking of live events, what's what's coming up next for you? Uh, so I actually fly out on Sunday. Uh, I'm going to uh, First Cologne, where we'll do the coverage from the ESL studio ham event. Um so yeah, I have ESL one coming up, and uh, maybe a couple of other things. Uh, it seems I miss out in the uh, first round of DPC uh, this time around, so um, won't be doing any of those events. So it'll be a little bit light of a of an end of year for me. And have you got any any predictions upcoming for you know this DPC season, or is it just also up in the air after TI? You know, it's you've got so many TI shuffles year. going on. We've got a whole bunch of teams that have shuffled. We have O Crit, uh, who are not actually playing any games until the next. Se- um, even though actually uh, we had secret confirmed for the Singaporean event, the PGL's running. Um, mm. So yeah, like a lot of teams are just taking time off because they realize in the DPC that you just win one event and hey, you're going to TI. Yeah, it's that interesting uh, thing about OG, right? Just kind of moseying on through the whole year. Um, Anna, you know, not really part of it. 
comes back, takes the whole thing through the winner's bracket. So <laughs> it's definitely possible. And do you think that's do you think that's something else that needs to change? It needs to be more of a structured competitive series w- there needs which to be uh, more purpose. leads up to it? There needs to be more purpose throughout the year for sure. Like uh, that's mm. really the thing. Um, yeah, teams bouncing in and out just because they can. Um, it's not great. But at the same time, forcing teams to play throughout the entire year uh, is not great either because then you've got burnout problems. Mm. But and if that's Dota only, f- be- that's only because like uh, Dota and most esports don't run with a sub. Like it's uh, you have to run this yeah. this five man roster every single time, and it's uh, it's it's just setting itself up for for a little bit of failure. Yeah, that is true. And hey, if if Dota fell over tomorrow, do you see yourself going into any other games, any other major contenders for you? Um, I would kind of cross that bridge when I came to it. Um, but for me, like as I'm getting on in my age, I think Dota is uh, where it's my last game. Um, I don't see myself transitioning to anything else. Like it's uh, it's where my career really exploded, and that's probably where my career will end. Fantastic, mate. Well. Wrapping up as always, where can people find you online if they want to follow your story? Um, so I, I have the, the regular social medias, Toby One Dota for all of them. Um, I have a LinkedIn page I never use, uh, which I'm assuming they probably... Um, <laughs> so uh, I'm over on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, just search for Toby Dawson and you'll probably end up finding me uh, on, on most of the networks. Yeah, fantastic, mate. Well, it's great to catch up with you again and always Great to chat to another Aussie over broad. You are, I think, number number three or number four so far of influential Aussies that have done some other things overseas. We've had Uber on, who we've talked about before. We had David Parker, Gods, and we also had the co-founder of Fnatic and, and the mother of the current CEO, Anne Matthews. So mm-hmm. great to have another Aussie kicking ass overseas, mate. So that's good to see. <laughs> yeah, I call it my mother. I don't sound that Aussie anymore. I don't. Like, I have too much my um, my English tint of an accent, which I've always had. <laughs> that is that is true, and I, I did notice that when we first started talking. But um, yeah, I never sound Australian until someone sense. says you got like the word Australia, and they're like, "Yeah, Australian." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that's it. <laughs> Just I, depends how you pronounce Melbourne. I guess that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, Melbourne, uh, Scon, <laughs> <laughs> all staples of the um of the global esports vocabulary. I'm sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Awesome, man. Well, thanks thanks so much for coming on. It was great to talk to you. All right, not a problem. And thank you to listening in to the Big Esports Podcast. As always, for any of the show notes to anything we talked about today, any of the topics or relevant links, you can head to bigesports.gg forward slash five nine. Thanks and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. 